0: Hello, welcome to the Whisker of Oz. I'm Marcus
1: and I'm Sophia. Hey
0: Sophia, how's it going today?
1: Good Marcus, how are you?
0: I'm good. I'm happy that summer classes are over.
1: Yes, yeah it's relieving to say the Mm -hmm. least. Yeah, how did
0: you think that they compared to the usual semester classes?
1: I think it's hard to get a fair assessment on them because we did have a different professor for one of them and I don't know what it's like to have him during the regular semester mm-hmm. um but overall it felt harder I think just because it was so quick and I don't know if I ingested all the information I was at least as well as I wanted to
0: yeah because it was very quick and it felt kind of rushed at least for one of our classes because uh, there was a lot of material to get through
2: right. so
0: that was part of it um, for me I thought I preferred this format better and it might just be that I didn't have as much going on like I didn't have the the jobs going on and stuff you still had your right. GA but I didn't have either of those yeah. um so I felt like I had more time to devote to the classes and I liked having only two classes to focus on instead of the usual four right
1: yeah right yeah. I think but, it was nice to have the two but it's a lot
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it is it was a lot of work crunched into a little amount of time.
1: Um, It's had the same flow as a regular semester, though. You know, I'm kind of easy on in the beginning, and then as we got to the last, well, I want to say two weeks, it was just, like, assignment after assignment after assignment. Like, I feel like I didn't stop for weeks.
0: Yeah, it was, like, the same thing except crunched up into a short amount of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just made more awful.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... I realized that we never explained the title of the podcast and some people might not get what we mean by it. So I'm going to explain that. So the podcast is called the Whisker of Oz adventures in school psychology. So one of the tests, the cognitive assessments that we learned to administer in our first semester is called the WISC, which stands for the Wexler intelligence scales for children. And so that was the school psychology pun that we wanted to work into the title. And then we also wanted to incorporate Oswego into it somehow because we're in the SUNY Oswego program. And one of the nicknames for Oswego was Oz. So that's how we came up with Whisker of Oz. I thought it was pretty clever.
1: I think it was pretty good. I did. I was a big fan of whiskey business. Yeah. I think I always will be, but yeah. It missed that Oswego component.
0: True. Mm-hmm. So Before we start talking to our guests, we wanted to do a little introduction for them and we wanted them to kind of mirror part of our reports and one of the sections that we do for them.
1: So the beginning of like most, I don't wanna say most, I guess all reports should have a background section within the first page or so. Um, And at least in mine, I do a parent and a child interview and then you gather as much information as possible, whether it's academics, behaviors, sports, and extracurriculars, things that they're good at. And that's the big emphasis in your, your background section is that you want to really emphasize what the kid is good at. Because a lot of times when you're assessing a child, there are some perceived weaknesses. So you want to emphasize that the kid does have strengths and there are things that they are definitely good at. And it's not all just bad stuff, but you do also want to note their weaknesses as well as their strengths Mm -hmm. so you just want to take the background section as an opportunity to get a full picture of the kid before you look just at their cognitive and achievement abilities
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it was dr grudo who explained it as we're kind of like trying to tell the story of the kid with our evaluations right so we obviously don't have as comprehensive an eva- of an evaluation of our guests as we do of our kids. But uh, we wanted to do kind of an introduction for our guests that uh, was similar to that section. So we've got two guests this week. Our first guest name is Jared Cucinata. Jared Cucinata is going into his third year of the School Psychology Master's Program, and he is a fellow with the School Psychology Department. He grew up in Manlius, New York, and graduated from the Fayetteville-Manlius School District. Jared has spent most of his adult life in Syracuse and Boston, and he now lives in Syracuse. By working in the Syracuse City School District, Jared is following in the footsteps of his mother and grandmother, who were teachers in that same district. In exciting news, Jared recently got married. In his free time, Jared enjoys hiking in the Adirondacks, taking care of his plants in his garden, and watching the trashiest reality TV. He told us that his biggest strength is probably counseling. Jared loves being able to have conversations with his students, and he thinks that the challenging students are the most fun to work with. He has been described as loyal, determined, and fun-loving. And then our other guest this week is Nathaniel Kronk. Nathaniel Kronk is going into his third year of the School Psychology Master's Program, and he is also a fellow with the School Psychology Department. He grew up in the Altmar Parish, Williamstown School District, and he now lives in West Monroe, New York. Nate is getting married in less than a month. In his free time, he likes to exercise, watch TV, and play Magic the Gathering. One of Nate's strengths is that he has a strong worth ethic. He has been described as compassionate, goofy, and competitive. So those are our guests, and I'm really excited to talk to them and have a good conversation with them. Hello, Nate and Jared. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Uh, If you guys just want to introduce yourselves with your name and your pronouns to start, and then
3: we'll get started. Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Nathaniel Kronk.
2: I, uh, he, him. Um, Yeah. And I'm Jared Cucinata, and I use he, him pronouns. Great. Thank you.
1: Um, So the first thing we wanted to ask you guys is what you are most passionate about within the field of school psychology, and if you could explain it kind of in layman's terms.
3: Yeah, so mine was sort of, I don't want to say newly discovered, because I always sort of had a a passion for it, Um, but it definitely reinvigorated over a couple of my coursework classes over the, like, last semester. But I really like behavioral intervention and uh, behavioral assessment. Um, I think it's a super interesting part of the job, and I think it has a a lot of impact on a student's academic functioning. What that is is just um, being able to look at a child's behavior, sort of determine the function of their behavior the reason for their behavior, and then developing a strong intervention plan with uh, evidence-based practices to try and get it so that those behaviors aren't impeding their uh, academic success or those other students in the classroom.
2: You know, I would have to agree with Nate. For me, it's been a journey. I think when I entered the program, I thought cognitive assessments would be my favorite thing. And I do enjoy giving those and I like scoring them. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. But what I found is in the schools, teachers and administrators tend to find the behavioral interventions to be the most helpful. And I don't know if that's just because of the time we're in with kids coming out of COVID. Maybe we're relearning certain things, but My biggest passion is helping out the school. And I found that the behavioral interventions, like Nate said, tend to be the most appreciated by the teachers. So I'm learning to like those the best.
0: And did you find that uh, giving the cognitive assessments was still enjoyable in the schools, or was it more enjoyable during the program?
3: It's super enjoyable in the school. It's, you know, in the program, you find your own your own people to sort of test these assessments out on and get the hang of it and when you actually start doing it with a kid uh, and a student, you sort of get the you get to meet new students and new personalities and experiences and there's always there's always some it's always some fun to it and uh, I still find it really fun in school just maybe not my favorite part.
0: And we're I think we're looking forward to getting to see what that's like in the schools because we haven't had that experience yet
3: it is very fun once you're actually in the school being able to sort
2: of be like oh yeah yeah this
3: is how you do the job
2: so much better in the school it's such a great time to get to know the kids too because you can make them as fun as you want to make them and especially with the younger kids sometimes they just say like the funniest things and I've really enjoyed working in the school it's more fun to give them to the kids than it is to give them to my husband and my friends they are enjoying the break that I'm not cornering them and testing them every week.
1: I think that's something that our cohort is definitely looking forward to because we had quite a few issues um with testing friends and family. they all kind of ended up pretty poorly.
3: well, it definitely becomes a little bit easier in the school. there's a and believe me, your supervisor will have a long list of
2: ones that are available so. Wait Sophia, what do you mean by poorly?
1: um I know a couple of us tested some siblings um which ended just awful every time I know with my own sister it was it was pretty rough she like just wanted nothing to do with it and it ended in a huge fight <laughs> and I think at least two or three of us had the same um, experience so it seems seems like our participants just didn't really like it too much
2: they're very long I d- yeah, it takes a long time, and I've had participants who insist that they're giving the right answer when they're not, and it just turns into this clash, which I, I've not had that experience with students.
3: Yeah, also bribery. Bribery was key for me in the in the classes. Uh, it's not bribery. It's, it's positive reinforcement. So if they sat down, we got through a, a lot of the tests. I usually brought, like, donuts or something. It was eat like, donuts while we do it. But definitely learning is a it's a journey learning the test and getting your own
2: your own examinees.
3: Nate, can you test
2: me? I want donuts. Uh,
3: no, I got I got a wedding to pay for. I know I'm not, not affording any more donuts anymore. All right, fair enough.
1: All right. So our next question for you guys is: What you're most passionate about outside of school psychology? So in your own personal lives.
3: Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, I guess it's like. For me, it's, it's family first, it's everything. Uh, I come from a very large family. I come from a very rural, rural community. Um, so I, I have eight siblings. So I got, I got quite the quite the family, a uh, large extended family. So, and I, I'm always trying to have my free time, trying to invite my little brothers over to spend time with them. I just had my youngest little brother. Uh, shout out, Jaden just graduated high school this year. Um, I have another younger brother who's uh, going into the seventh grade, and I have a younger sister, who's uh, six years old. So I always try to spend some kind of time to spend time with them and go catch a movie or something. Uh, But yeah, yeah. so for me, it's really about family. That's awesome.
2: For me, I really want to try to travel a lot this summer. That's been my new focus. I didn't do really anything during COVID. And before COVID, I never had the money to travel. So now I want to go see national parks. I love nature. I love hiking. I want to try doing some camping. So for me, the passion is figuring out really great parks to go to and seeing new places. That sounds like a nice relaxing break from our program. A much needed break.
0: That's great. Um, So thank you guys for that. Our next thing that I want to talk about is the fellowship. So uh, just a quick overview, we talked about it in the last episode, but the school psychology department got a fellowship. It's called CRISP, Cultivating Representation in School Psychology. And the three of us, me, Nate, and Jared, are the current fellows for this past semester. And Nate and Jared just kind of graduated out of the fellowship because they will be full-time in their internship next year. Um, so I just wanted to ask you guys, to talk about kind of the work that you did as part of the fellowship this past semester. Uh,
3: yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that also you did. Don't, don't <laughs> downplay your own role, Marcus. Um, but yeah, we did a lot of work. Um, the whole purpose obviously was to, uh, as it says, cultivate representation in school psychology. So we sort of went in, and I know we had some brainstorming sessions. That, yeah, What does that look like? How do we really push that initiative in a way that is effective and efficient. And we were sort of doing it on a, I don't want to say a time crunch, but not a whole lot of preparation time. We, we got the grant, I believe, just a couple weeks before the spring semester started. And we were accepted as fellows maybe a week before the spring semester started. And so we were trying to hit the ground running and get going on it. Um, so for us, at, one of the big things I think we highlighted was we, we want to get the information out there. We want people to know from those uh, populations that, don't make up a lot of the field of school psychology. So those are racial minorities and or males. um, That this grant, this scholarship is out there and that if they were to apply here, this is a a wonderful opportunity. I mean, everyone we reached out to was always talking about how great of an opportunity it was. So I, I feel like getting the information out there was one of the big priorities. So for a while, we sort of focused on that. Then we also wanted to focus on retention of those same people here. Uh, And I know Jared did a lot of research uh, about about retention and I also helped out a little bit too, but in terms of, um, and not only in psychology fields, but just in generally graduate schools and sort of what that could sort of look like. And I think that's what led us to uh, developing this sort of mentorship program that we're hoping to pilot here in the fall Um, and, Yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about that, Jared, sort of what you found, some of your research, and what our plans were for that mentorship program.
2: Right. Well, one of the biggest problems that the field of school psychology is facing is that there's a shortage of people entering the field. And looking down the road, it's unsustainable. We need to recruit more people. And what the research showed us was for all students, they performed better when there were mentorship programs. It fostered more community, it gave Uh, especially first-year students, more access to resources to get them through that first year. So we thought this is what the research is telling us to do. Let's see how we can implement this. And I think we came up with a really cool program. I'm super excited to start it next year. And then I think another interesting part about the fellowship, like Nate had mentioned, it was brand new. So I feel like we spent a lot of the past semester just figuring out what the fellowship is gonna be and trying to create a rhythm and create roles for the fellows. And I'm excited to meet the next three fellows because this is going to be our first full year of the fellowship. And I think we're going to come up with something really, really cool together. I, I just can't wait for them to join us in a couple months.
0: Yeah. And like you mentioned, it was so exciting to be able to kind of create what we wanted this to look like. And as an example of that, it's this podcast is part of that and it was just so it's exciting for me going forward in the future for next year to be able to keep kind of innovating and figuring out what works best for us.
3: I mean even the timeline, right? Like it, that you get a whole other semester where it, in terms of long-term planning um that you just have access to because here it's even hard to plan where worth- we're planning in the spring for stuff happening in the fall. There's a whole summer in between it's hard, hard to really navigate how it's going to, how things are going to look that far out. But I feel like those two semesters that's that fall and spring semester, they're usually pretty concrete with an academic calendar and you know, when things are happening. So I think that's going to be a really efficient way for some of the new fellows and for you uh, to be able to come up with some new initiatives and ideas. And for us to sort of help you guys with that too.
0: Yeah. And that's a, really exciting for, it's going to be exciting for all of us to see what the future looks like. And speaking of that, I wanted to ask you both, we kind of just talked about the mentorship program, but looking forward, what would the two of you hope for the fellowship? It's a five-year grant, so there's uh, that four and a half years remaining. What do you two hope to see in the future outside of the mentorship beyond that?
3: I guess I'll I'll speak first. Uh, uh, Not only... Obviously, the goal goal of the uh, fellowship is that we increase diversity and representation in the field. So I obviously want people of those kind of representative groups to join the fellowship. But I also would like to see, uh, we're partnered with Syracuse City School District on this. So I would love to see um, some maybe past Syracuse graduates to really give back to the community because who knows the community better than those who grew up in that community. So can't guarantee it's going to happen. But it would be really cool to see some um, Syracuse, uh, people who grew up in Syracuse end up in that fellowship and sort of be able to benefit from that and then give back to the same community.
2: I totally agree. I live in Syracuse myself, and my mom taught in the Syracuse schools, my grandma taught in the Syracuse schools. So I really want to be able to promote this within the schools while I'm working there too, and really foster this relationship between the Syracuse City District and SUNY Oswego. I think it's such a great opportunity for people to enter SUNY Oswego and have a chance to, it's a pipeline. This fellowship is a pipeline to your first job. And I find that to be super exciting. I also want to mention that I thought the fellowship was a great uh, professional growth experience. It pushed me to do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. I got to present at colleges that's something i wouldn't have done without the fellowship and i was so nervous before i did it but i'm so happy i did it because i felt like i grew as a professional and it allowed me to be creative and it created so many opportunities to grow so i think next year we're only going to see more of that so that's my hope that there's going to be more creativity maybe more presentations and building more relationships that's my hope in terms of uh piggybacking
3: off what Jared said in terms of professional development and growth. Uh, you know, it's something that we, we sort of didn't really get to get going too heavily this this semester. We, we've looked into it. We have some names down. We have some plans going forward. But that's something I would, I would love to see in terms of, of speakers, people who can provide some unique insight through either their research or their experiences within urban school districts like Syracuse City, and just being able to provide that kind of professional development. And like Jared said, it's just the amount of Opportunities that I think we receive just to do things that sort of push our boundaries and you know put us out of our comfort zone and let us grow as professionals and as future school psychologists.
0: That's great. Thank you guys so much for that. I am glad that for this first semester, we had such a good group of the three of us to kind of get the ground running on this. And I hope that we laid a good foundation for. The future fellows to really keep this rolling and i think they will and i'm excited for yeah. that
3: mm-hmm. you let us know how we did marcus
0: <laughs> i'll be sure to keep in touch all right so you now we talked about the fellowship so we're going to get into the main topic of the episode now
1: um so our, our main topic as marcus said is um just trying to pick everybody's brain and see what kind of things we wish we knew before starting
3: grad school i i'll go mine are easy because i feel like in a lot of ways i had to, I had to adjust quickly i was not a super good planner um, even in the beginning of undergrad near the end of undergrad i sort of started to figure that out and get get on get my ball rolling but uh time management you no, know, learn how to manage your time uh learn that uh an hour sometime like back in the day i used to think oh an hour is not enough time to do stuff uh, I can do stuff in an hour now like an hour is an a good time for me for me to work on a paper or finish an assignment or do something that I need to do um, and I think that's just the most important part is being aware of your own time and what you're going to do um, yeah and also leave time for self-care in that same vein uh, just because you have all this work to do doesn't mean you still have to go and
2: take care of yourself otherwise you are going to burn out of school too so there's a couple things I wish I had known. I think the first one is kind of specific to the job itself where I knew a school psychologists worked with in special education but I don't I didn't realize just how much of our job really did focus on special education. I love that. I always wanted to work in that field, but I do know sometimes people enter the program thinking it's gonna be more like a school counseling job. And I feel like they're uh, thrown off by the first semester when they see how much of it is about classifying disabilities and coming up with interventions for special education. That was a pleasant surprise for me. That worked out fine. A not pleasant surprise for me was imposter syndrome. My first year in the program, I really, really suffered from this and I thought, I didn't belong in the school. I thought, oh, how did I get picked to be here? I just, I don't know. I did well on the test. This isn't right for me. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm always like one step behind. And I didn't talk about it with my cohorts. I just wanted to look like, okay, I got this. I wanted to project like I knew what I was doing. But a lot of the times I really didn't know. And come to find out later on, almost everybody had that feeling in their first year. Almost everybody when they started counseling kids felt really nervous and felt like, oh, am I doing a good enough job? That kind of insecurity. So I wish I had known that that would be a normal part of a graduate program to feel like you're an imposter. A lot of people feel that. And then I have to say my second year of the program, I didn't feel that. I felt really, really confident. And it was in my second year that when I entered the schools and I started working with kids, I felt like I know what I'm doing. Okay, I know what this is. I know how to help, and my confidence grew so much in the second year. But that first year, it was for me tough on a just a personal level. Yeah, and I and
3: again, I'm gonna piggyback off of you again, Jared. Um, I think for me, and I, you can confirm this or deny this whether you're, for your own experience. But I think for me, I also that imposter syndrome. I think what helped me a lot in the second year was um, I think we started to come together even further as a cohort and sort of talk about our experiences and sort of lean on each other like what would you do how do you what do you think about this like like and i think like the first year we were pretty tight we did get tight right off the rip which is i highly recommend by the way it's another thing i wish that people should know going in is rely on each other push each other help each other recommend stuff to each other look out for each other because Really, you get by with your cohort and your cohort matters a lot to your success. Um, so I feel like the second year we came together a lot closer, and that's sort of what helped me with that imposter syndrome. I saw, you know, other people had those feelings, they're learning, but like talk, even just talking with and engaging in that conversation about aspects related to school psychology, it made me realize, like, oh, like I do have this stuff like down i do know some of this stuff and i am able to convey it in a meaningful way to other people and i think that really helped me that second year of the program
0: yeah and just to build off of that nate what you were saying about your cohort one of the main things that i wish i knew was how close we would get as a cohort very quickly um because i know like before i entered grad school i was kind of nervous about like who would be in the cohort. And I remember asking Dr. Story when I met with her, like how close are the cohorts? And of course it varies from, I'm sure from cohort to cohort, but I was pleasantly surprised at how close we got so quickly within probably the first few weeks, definitely within the first month. uh, Most of us were pretty close, but, and that helps us a lot with our assignments and Uh, testing and everything and just getting through the stresses of the program as long as you have each other to rely on and to ask questions and to kind of lean on for emotional support that's such an important part of staying in the program and getting through but also I wish I knew how it kind of takes effort to establish those relationships and maintain those relationships on all ends and I just hope that incoming grad students are willing to make those connections and are willing to keep those connections up because those are the things that will help you in the long term and that will make grad school a lot more enjoyable for you.
1: I think going off of that you also have to be comfortable being uncomfortable when you come in. I know like I had a pretty rocky undergrad experience. I kind of like sped through it and it was COVID and I came straight here um, and I had no idea what the like friendship building aspect of college was like and I knew this was going to be super different because it was a grad program and I had to get myself comfortable with the idea of being vulnerable with these people that I have no idea what they're like I don't know what their interests are where they're from I don't know anything about them I know anything about our professors or I I was pretty comfortable with campus because I went here but there were just so many unknowns that I had to really digest very quickly and just push out of the way because I had to get going and I had to Build relationships and just jump right in, and I think that's something I wasn't expecting.
3: Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about get being comfortable. It's going to come a point of vulnerability uh, in your cohort where you're going to make a friend. You're going to have to have vulnerability there, and I feel like it, it is really hard. And I I can agree with you that I also went here, so I, I was pretty comfortable with campus. I knew where everything was. If you d- didn't go, where you're going to for your Graduate school or masters, and you didn't go to undergrad there. I recommend looking at the map a little bit. Uh, I know there were more than one person asked me on the first week, uh, "Where do I find this? Where do I find this? How do I get here?" And so, definitely small note, but check out the map a little bit if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the campus. Um, but I think that vulnerability is super important because psychology is a, is a vulnerable field. You know, a, a lot of these kids are really struggling that we work with a lot of students are struggling to meet either academic expectations or they're struggling to reach their full potentials um, for whatever reason that might be affecting them. And uh, we, had, you have to get comfortable with vulnerability. Those those students and their families are going to be vulnerable with you about th- their struggles. And it's just a kind of feeling or vibe that we got to get used to and be being around
2: and being able to talk about it. You know, Sophia, you talked about being new and trying to navigate that and just how quickly grad school moves and how, uh, you know, that feeling in the beginning. I would recommend to anyone who's starting a graduate program, lean on your professors. When I was an undergraduate student, I never went to office hours. I never, I would go to class and then I would leave. That was it. And what I found in graduate school These professors, especially in the school psych program, they are so invested in us and they're invested in our outcomes. They're here to help. And I wish I'd started building relationships with them sooner. But it's going to happen naturally. You're going to see the same professors over and over again. You're just going to naturally form a relationship. But I think maybe as a new graduate student, you just don't want to impose yourself. You don't want to reach out. But that's what they're there for. And they want you to show up to their office hours. They're so bummed when people don't show up so I tell any new students like rely on your professors they love to help and that's what they're here to do they're here to support every single one of you
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah i second that because i always felt like an undergrad like i was, like if i was sending an email to a
3: professor i'd be like yeah i don't want to bother them though or like i don't want to look mm-hmm. like i don't know this and now like obviously i feel like you know do i have any any question i'm like all i want to just email story really quick and usually get an answer pretty quickly, and I think it's important to understand that they know you're going to have a lot of questions because it's a lot of new stuff. So it's important to reach out, not
2: be afraid to be like, "I don't know this. Can you help me?" Mm-hmm. Nate, you straight up call the professor sometimes too. You take it to the oh, next yeah. level. I'm a, I'm a big caller, man. I
3: I hate I hate texting. I hate messaging. Like I, I feel like no one ever answers. I, I'm like call first, and then if you don't answer, I'll send you a text. <laughs>
0: Um, That was a great point, Jared, because when I went into grad school, I felt like because these were grad school professors, that they would kind of be like focused on research and not focused on helping students. And it was kind of an intimidating experience to go in and not know if they are going to care if we succeed. And I think I was surprised at how willing some of them are to help and how invested they seem in making sure that we succeed.
1: I think part of that is because of the field we're going into and because there's such a shortage, especially in the central New York area, like all our professors want us to do is succeed and to be these like wealth of knowledge that go out into the world and help these kids. Like, I think it's just important to them that they're giving us as much support and background and thought provoking anything, information really, that they can so that we're going and processing it and bringing it to other people and just spreading all this information. They're kind of like a vessel,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. And I, and I think on, on that note too, because there is so many, so many professors that have a little bit different takes or opinions on certain things regarding the field. I think another thing I, I, I would, I guess, is go out to any graduate program, but specifically school psychology programs. I think going into it, you should know that like you don't have to be exactly what your professors would be. You will eventually develop your own professional identity as a school psychologist. It's important to just take what they know and, and sort of process that in your own lens of what you want to be as a school psychologist.
0: Yes, it's very true. They're so, we have such a variety of professors that all will impart different things in us. And I think that's a good thing that we have a lot of different perspectives to take in and, apply to our own practice
3: absolutely and, and as you guys go into practicum and um your full year school psych practicum, you guys you guys will see uh well maybe this professor said this way but i think in the school that i'm in or i think the way i'm gonna do it is like this and you'll see that things will work for you and things won't and it's just it's more about just going through the experience and learning from it I think
0: it's a kind of an empowering field in some ways in that we're kind of given freedom, sometimes depending on our district, but most of the time given freedom to figure out what we want to make the job and what kind of values we want to impart in our work. And I think that's an empowering experience.
2: You know, Marcus, you're talking about that freedom and it just got me thinking about how the reason we do get a lot of freedom on the job is that a lot of times we're alone in a school. It's not uncommon for a school psychologist to be the only one in a building. And I'd say this connects back to what we were saying earlier about fostering a community. Like You're gonna wanna foster relationships with your cohort because when you go to a school and you're alone, you're gonna wanna know the other school psychs in the area. And that's how we create community with each other. We're not always in the same space, but it's through those relationships. And we're going to be seeing each other down the road. If you guys are school psychs in the central New York area, like we're going to be crossing paths for years to come. It's not just grad school.
0: Yeah. And it's great that this program is good at connecting us in some ways. It's kind of uh, the nature of a stressful grad school experience that you get bonded to your cohort. And uh, it's just that's a positive of the stress that we get to bond with each other and have those connections um, throughout our lives. If we stay in the same area.
3: Yeah. I think that I like that you brought up the stress too, I feel like we have, we have all shed the light on the great things about the program. I don't want to, I'll be (laughs) upfront and say it it can be stressful. The first year is definitely you're learning a lot of new things. Um, It's a work, it's graduate level workload for the first time. So you're sort of adjusting to it. Um and so it is stressful, but I don't know. I think I've learned to thrive in the stress at this point. I think <laughs> to the, that I think now I do make the most growth when I'm stressed. But it's definitely that's why I, I like I brought up the self care earlier because it's going to get stressful at some point. It's important to know how to step away from that and take care of yourself and what you need to sort of overcome that stress. <laughs>
2: Something I did, I made a hard rule with myself after I cried on my birthday, November six, because I had so much to write for my report. And I told myself, Jared, you're not going to do any work on Sundays, I just gave myself one day a week. And I said, you're not going to do any work. And that made such a huge difference for me, it just one day to not think about it, to step away. And I would recommend that to anyone in the program, you got to give yourself some time off. Otherwise, there's always work to do you could just work yourself constantly you have to build time for yourself to relax
3: yeah i think i'm a big mindfulness person i think you like with that and the building time for yourself to relax. it's important if you're not being mindful during that time so if you're like oh i'm not doing work within the whole time you're like oh, i should really be doing work i should i should really be doing this or like i, I better get on this or like man i can't believe i'm doing this and not work Then you're not being mindful of your self-care and you're in the activity that you're engaging in. And I think that's an important part too.
1: I think to both of your points, I during the regular semesters, it's a little different during the summer, but um during the fall and the spring, giving myself the evenings, like nighttime to kind of unwind, like at a certain point when I feel myself getting tired and falling off, just kind of being like, Okay, like I'm gonna shut this, I'll do it again in the morning, it's gonna go all day, you know, the next day, the next day, like it'll never end, like you said. But if you give yourself the evenings, you can kind of bring your stress levels down to a degree so you can like get a good night's sleep and really feel well rested for the next day and kind of refreshed like you want to go into every day feeling as refreshed as you possibly can during a graduate program.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I'm a big same thing. I after like four o'clock. I'm like, I'm probably four or five o'clock. I'm probably checking out like I'm probably like, yeah, I'm going to go watch a movie or something.
2: And it's okay. You give yourself that time off and somehow the work always gets done on time anyway. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but... I think this is advice I need to take. (laughs) Really,
0: Marcus? Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. Never considered this one day off thing. It's a good idea.
3: Yeah, it's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. can confirm.
0: Yeah, because even if you don't give yourself that break, I feel like it ends up happening anyway of like you just crash and burn and end up not working anyway and oh yeah you're either stressed out and not working or like taking the time for yourself and relaxing and not working
2: yeah and like- I feel like everyone has to find that balance of all right I want to work hard but it's going to be different for everyone and that's a big part of the first year I think is just figuring out your work-life balance too
3: Yeah. And I think that changes too, like between the first, because first year it's like, you're learning everything. So it sort of feels monotonous of like, okay, we're learning this. And we're learning this and we're learning this thing. I think once you actually get into like practicum year, it becomes like a, I don't know. I I think it's a little bit more. Like I want to do it. Like I I get a lot of joy out of doing it. I have a lot of fun doing it it, because it is like working with students and talking with students and, being able to help them and actual people in their academic success. I think that I get a lot of fun out of doing my work eventually
2: too. All
0: right, I have uh, a more basic recommendation for people going into this grad program specifically. I didn't know going in that we had to find our own volunteers and especially kids to test so Everyone should be ready to find uh, at least one kid, probably two or three, to test, and a slew of adults to test, friends, family members.
1: I would say going off of that, it will be very difficult to do if you are not local. I'm from Long Island, which is, whatever, six to eight hours away. It was really hard to find, especially children, volunteers on breaks, I would go home and I would do like two or three tests at a time because that's when I had kids. So I I would just be mindful of that if you're coming in.
3: Yeah. And definitely do it ahead of time. Like, don't, don't be like, oh, I got to learn, I got to do this, give this assessment, then have the report written next week. Let me go find someone. Nah, take like a month and try and get, send messages out early on in the semester. Like, I'm going to need these, I'm going to need to do this later on. Will you be available?
2: yeah for most classes i feel like you can get away with doing stuff the week that it's due when it comes to the class we're all talking about with testing and writing reports i would recommend for all the new students get started on that as early as possible it's going to help you out so much in the long run and hopefully as mentors we'll be able to help first-year students with that finding people to test Um, i have some ideas in mind my sister always said that she's willing to volunteer her children to be tested uh we'll find out how serious she is about that (laughs) i'm sure that would be much appreciated by the incoming first
0: years because i know like for us it felt like it was always kind of a struggle even for like i'm pretty local it was always a struggle to get kids Uh, and there was one test where it was like up to age 18 so i was able to grab an 18 year old so there was always like those situations where like just like trying to figure out who you know and who can fit within the age requirements of the test and uh, yeah it's a little difficult.
2: It's challenging but I also thought it was so much fun giving the test and practicing it because didn't you guys I don't know about your experience I'm curious but in undergrad I felt like we talked a lot about psychology I was a psychology undergrad but we didn't really practice it we didn't really do anything and now in graduate school it's like oh we're giving the assessments we're practicing counseling we're actually doing psychology and that to me was so exciting so yes there was stress finding people to test but it's so rewarding and it's so much more interesting than just reading about a test
1: I think being hands-on changes the experience a lot like you sit in class with story or we had Carlo for one and like you you read about the tests and you look at examples and things like that. But when you really sit down somebody and like start going through it and seeing every question that they're going to do and all of the verbiage, it's, it's just so different. It really changes what you think about these things.
0: And it's a great experience to get to know your volunteers better. In some cases, like with the background interview that I talked about last episode, it's just such a fun experience Uh, If you are testing people, you know.
1: I will say be open to change. I came in personally pretty set on the age group that I wanted to work with. And as soon as I started my counseling practicum, I like knew that I was wrong when I first came in.
3: I was really? really
1: set on high schoolers, but I like cannot possibly imagine working with anybody over the age of like 12 at this point.
3: That is very funny because I followed an almost identical path where I was dead set on working in a high school and then I did my mental health counseling practicum in a high school. And let's say that I enjoyed every student that I worked with. And I had a really great time with that. Um, but I just, and I'm also my last, my school psych practicum was in a middle school. Uh, so, and basically, I'll come, I still am interested in the high school because I really like the transition planning school psychology part of it. I really like, like preparing those students to be functioning members of society and get them out there and being able to contribute in the best way they can. So I like that part, but I definitely was like dead set on high school. And now I'm sort of like, "Mm, maybe there's some other spots I, I would enjoy too.
2: You know, Sophia, you brought up such a good point about being open to change and really just open to the experience because when I started my second year, I thought I wanted to work probably in like the CNS district or kind of a suburban district. I ended up getting placed at Syracuse and, uh, It just worked out to my advantage. It wasn't something I planned on and I ended up loving it and it changed where I wanted to do my internship. And then because I was doing my internship there, I got the fellowship opportunity and none of this was stuff that I could have foreseen happening. And I think for everyone in the program, you just, you don't know what's going to happen. So by being open to the experience, it's really creating opportunity and you got to trust the process. You got to trust it. Roll
3: with the punches
2: punch. Mm-hmm. and kind of related to what you were saying jared
0: about being open to new experiences uh, one of the things that i wish i knew going into grad school is how working while you're going to grad school is challenging but it can be such a rewarding experience in some situations uh, when i went in i just i wanted a graduate assistantship so i just kind of applied to as many as i could find and just like applied to all of them so i could get one of them and i ended up being the ga for the tutoring center on campus and that was one of the best experiences of my first semester and it was one of the things that really kept me going and kept me passionate about being here and it's important to have that variety of experiences and that's something that obviously i didn't go to grad school anticipating but it was one of the it's been one of the best experiences that i've had here
1: I will say bouncing off of that because Marcus was the GA there that I was spending a lot of time there the first um, semester and I ended up being a tutor in the spring semester. And it, it is a really actually, it's a nice insight as to how people learn. Um, I feel like it gives you this special idea, like closer to how a teacher would see a student. Um, I guess not really the same, but fairly similar. You can see how they work through things and it's just a nice add on to our program. I feel like it really made a difference in my own learning.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like even at that level, like, Story kept telling it to us a lot. She was like, like, don't just sit in the school psych office during your practice film, like go into the classroom, sit in on classes, help with students in classrooms if you can. And I I really took that to heart and I tried to get out there and do that. And I think that was, and and I'm a lot of the classrooms didn't, I don't want to say they didn't want me, but it, it was like I sort of let them do their own thing. I just watched. But in the ones I did get to get involved or I did get to do something with the students, that, w- that was really rewarding to me. And I, I think that's super important. And like you said, it's a different perspective that you see when it's actually, you're seeing how it fun how the classroom functions, and how like the learning process functions in
2: person. And going into the classrooms is the best part of practicum. You get to go in, you get to, form relationships with the kids and it really made me feel like I was a part of the school. It made me feel so much more comfortable going in there. It was so, I just love practicum. Like I'm so excited for you to, to start your school psych practicum in the second year. It, it was hands down my favorite experience from the whole graduate program.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I am hopeful that it's going to be a good experience.
3: Yeah, I, I will say it'll probably be you guys' favorite. I wouldn't doubt if it was guys' favorite experience thus far. It, for me, was one of my favorite experiences thus far. Just being able to do it and actually get that guidance too from someone who's currently in the role.
0: That's very good to hear. I hope that it's as good of an experience for us as it was for both of you. Did you think that it was that was a shared good experience amongst everyone in your cohort?
3: I think, yeah, I think the majority everyone had everyone enjoyed it. I think everyone had their gripes. Um, I don't think I don't think there's anyone who went into their practicum site was like, mine's perfect. but like I don't think anyone's gonna go work in a school and say, my school I'm working for is perfect either. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of challenges out there, and especially at school psychs, we're working with students who have difficulties in behavioral management or academic success. so it, it's gonna be challenging. But as a practicum student, you get so much freedom. And I think that's can make your experience so interesting. You're not on a schedule so much like a school psych is. You get to go into different classrooms. You get to do testing when you're ready to do it. So it, it's what you make of it. You, If you're willing to take charge of your practicum experience, you can make it really whatever you want it to be.
0: That's great to hear. Uh, it's definitely, like we were talking about before, it's a hands-on job and you really get that empowerment to make it what you want in some situations so it sounds like this practicum really mimics the career in a lot of ways
3: it's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. also just fun because kids, kids just come up to you and they want to know why you're in the classroom when you're doing an observation and you can't tell them but it's fun that they come up to you and they're like what are you doing
0: so does anyone else have any good pieces of advice for incoming grad students that we haven't covered yet I-
3: I think I've covered everything I, I got to say. Good, good.
0: Well, we had a lot of great pieces of advice and I hope that the incoming grad students will be able to hear this and uh, we all wish them luck and it's a very exciting experience. I'm excited for all of them and it's going to be stressful, but uh, I think it'll be rewarding at the end.
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I love love the field. I love the work I've got to do so far. I'm excited for my internship, excited to become a school psychologist. uh, And after I pass my practice exam and get done with the internship, but I'm ecstatic about the field and where it's going. Excited to see the
2: first years come in and take the same journey you guys have thus far. Mm -hmm. I know. I can't wait to meet the first years. I hope I get to see them all at the beginning of this semester. I hope they're excited about the mentorship program and being a part of our community. We formed such a great community at Oswego and I'm ready to bring in some new people.
0: That's great. Yes, this mentorship program will be a great opportunity for us all to connect more with them. That's a very exciting part of the fellowship. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I, think our audience will learn a lot from you and we learned quite a bit from you too. So thank you so much. You're always very supportive and we can always learn more from you. So thank you so much. Our first guest.
2: Hey, thank you guys for doing this. (laughs) This is so exciting. I can't wait to hear more. Thanks guys.
0: Well, thank you Nate and Jared for being our first guests. That was a good conversation uh, and I'm excited for our future guests. So now uh, we're gonna do our DEI segment where we highlight issues with diversity, equity and inclusion within the field of school psychology. So a couple of weeks ago at this point was Juneteenth and I just wanna talk about why race might be important to us as school psychologists and how it applies to the field. So the National Association of School Psychologists or NASP as I'll be referring to it, put out a position statement a few years ago, mostly in response to police brutality that had been going on. Uh, And one of the sentences that I picked out was, we have an ethical responsibility to engage in social justice and anti-racist action. And for me, I think one of the reasons for that is that we have a responsibility to make sure that all students are getting a fair education and are not being unfairly discriminated against. And we're responsible for each student making sure that is happening. And unfortunately, there's a lot of disparities that happen in education based on race and based on other things too. But our focus right now will be race. Um, So it's important because... A lot of the students, we're not going to just be working with students that are white students. There's going to be a lot of different cultures and a lot of different races that make up our student body. In 2021, only about 45% of students enrolled in public schools in our country are white, and the rest of the makeup was other racial and ethnic minority groups. Uh, Black or African American students made up 15% of the public school population. Hispanic or Latino students made up about 28% of uh, the population. And there's a lot of disparities that occur. So in 2014, the high school graduation rate for white students was 87%. For black students, it was only 73%. And there's a lot of factors that go into this. There could be neighborhood environment factors, uh, school factors, but a big factor is how students that are from racial minority groups are treated by teachers and administrators. And one statistic that stuck out to me is that black students are 54% less likely to be referred to a gifted program than white students are even when test scores are controlled for. So when these students perform the same on standardized tests, black or African American students still have a 54% less chance of being referred to gifted programs. So they're not being recognized uh, fully for their abilities and their potential. And then another big problem we see is discipline. So Black or African-American students had an out-of-school suspension rate that was 3.5 times higher than it is for white students as of 2012. And these disparities go beyond above and beyond poverty or socioeconomic status, which obviously has a big intersection with race in our society. But it goes above and beyond that. So it's based on race. and. These disparities in suspension, while they might seem kind of trivial at the time, they can lead to higher rates of placement in the juvenile justice system, less chance of graduating and lower wages overall than their white peers. Uh, And this part of this is known as the school to prison pipeline, where a lot of these disproportionate discipline measures against minority students can lead to a higher rate of um, imprisonment and interactions with the criminal justice system. And then another thing that we talk about within school psychology is something called disproportionality because a lot of what we do focuses on placing students in special education, deciding whether they should go in special education or not, and disproportionality is a term that refers to either the overrepresentation or underrepresentation of a group of students within special education specifically in this case. Uh, And it's been found that Black or African American students are 1.5 times more likely to receive special education services than other racial or ethnic groups combined. And while some people may see special education as a good thing, and it is in a lot of cases, it's not a good thing to identify someone when they should not be identified if they don't have a disability, if they don't have an educational disability. There are potential harms in labeling and in excluding them from the general education environment that need to be accounted for. So if they aren't, don't have an educational disability, then they should not be identified as having one. But we're seeing that race can play a big part in that. So I think it's important as school psychologists that we have some kind of cultural competence and we understand what's important to other cultures and we understand the history and what's led us to this point. what's led to all these disparities, which I just touched on, but there's a whole host of big problems related to race and education. And a lot of these are, a lot of the systemic racism in our society is rooted in the institution of slavery uh, because of the effects of that still rippling through our society. So an important holiday to take note of is Juneteenth. So I'm just going to give a brief history of what this holiday is for a lot of people that don't know because it's been celebrated for a long time. It's been celebrated since 1866 in the black community, especially in Texas. And it's recently become part of the larger conversation around race in the country. But a lot of, especially white people, don't know what this holiday is and don't know its importance. So I just wanna highlight that a little bit. So the Civil War fought mainly, the main cause of the Civil War was slavery. In 1860, almost 4 million people were still enslaved in the United States. So we had the Union and the Confederacy fighting for control. The Union wanted to keep the country united and the Confederacy wanted to break off and maintain the institution of slavery. So a really important event was the Emancipation Proclamation, which most people know about Abraham Lincoln issued this, and it went into effect January 1st, 1863. And it declared that all enslaved people in the Confederacy were to be freed. So this did not apply to people that were still enslaved within the Union states, which included border states that still supported the institution of slavery. But the enslaved people in the Confederate states were supposed to be freed. Obviously, since the Union were still fighting for control, that didn't mean a whole lot immediately. But it did mean that uh, when Union troops took control of an area that those enslaved people could be free and could join the military, and they were a big part of the uh, Union's victory. After the war ended, uh, after Robert E. Lee surrendered in 1865, were still that still didn't lead to all enslaved people being free. There were still states in the South that Union troops hadn't reached yet, such as Texas, There were slave owners that would bring their enslaved people to Texas just to avoid Union troops. So there were a lot of enslaved people still in Texas after the war was over and after they should have been given their freedom already. But on June 19th, 1865, Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas and read off the Emancipation Proclamation and notified enslaved people of their freedom So this is where the holiday Juneteenth come from. It's that day where the furthest state in the Confederacy was reached. And it was still a struggle, though. A lot of people did not free their enslaved people immediately. They fought to keep control of them. And the enslaved people could be killed or harmed in other ways if they tried to escape. I read about one extreme case where an enslaved person had to stay for six years after 1865, because they just couldn't escape the person who claimed ownership over them. But an important point to note is that there were still people being enslaved in the border states after this, because the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to them. So after that, the 13th Amendment was approved and ratified, and it went into effect on December 18th, 1865. and. That led to the ending of the institution of slavery throughout the whole country. So, the more than 100,000 enslaved people in Kentucky and Delaware were then freed. So, this holiday is meant partly as a celebration of freedom, a celebration of the ending of the institution of slavery, but also as a time of reflection on how much progress still needs to be made. There's still a lot of slavery going on in the world. Uh, example in this country is that the 13th Amendment has an exception for people convicted of a crime, so if you're convicted of a crime, you can still have forced labor uh, as a legal practice, so that's uh, a problem that a lot of people have seen in this country, and there's also all these systemic racism challenges that can be reflected on, too, as I just talked about, in education and in every, really every factor in our society has some kind of Disparities, whether it's housing or employment or mass incarceration, there's a lot of disparities, and I'm hoping that we can get into some more of those in future episodes. In 2021, uh, Juneteenth was made a national holiday by President Joe Biden, and that really solidified it as a national holiday that we should all be aware of and that we can all reflect on to. Reflect on Juneteenth, I went to the Strong Museum in Rochester, which is the Museum of Play, and they had a Juneteenth celebration, and it was a great opportunity to just listen and learn more about the holiday, and they had a variety of speakers, and they talked about Juneteenth and what it means to them, and some people see it as a reflection of the value of hope in uncertain times, and just having hope and knowing that anything is possible. If there's, if there's enough activism, you can create change in the world. And so it was a great experience to just learn more about this holiday. And they had a ceremony where they celebrated some of the elders in the Black Rochester community. And they talked about all the achievements that they had had throughout their lives and what they had done for the community. And I just really enjoyed the whole experience. And it really uh, was great to see the community come together and celebrate this holiday. And after that, uh, we went through the museum Uh, and it's a great museum for people that are interested in play therapy or uh, psychology of children, because a lot of the exhibits talk about what the toys mean to the children and what the methods of play do for the psychology of children. And I had an eye out for exhibits that highlighted diversity and there weren't that many, but there were a good chunk of exhibits that talked about representation in toys and uh, how over time they became more racially diverse. There was one exhibit that talked about the Peanuts comic strip and how they eventually added a black character to the Peanuts comic strip because of a parent writing to the author of the comic strip. And I saw different toys that there was a series of dolls where one of the dolls was a formerly enslaved person who had escaped to freedom. There was a toy for an indigenous girl and about her experience. And it was just great to see the different exhibits that talked about how representation matters to children in their play and seeing them represented in their toys is an important part to their self concepts and how they see themselves in the world so yeah it was a great experience and I highly recommend the museum to anyone that wants to check it out those exhibits are year-round and I just thought it was a great experience to go see and to learn more and to listen
1: Well, thank you for sharing, Marcus, because I, unfortunately, there was nothing going on that I could at least find in Oswego um, that weekend for Juneteenth, and I probably should have looked in Syracuse or Rochester, but we had quite a few assignments that week also, Mm -hmm. so I was doing a lot of, Um, I wanted to touch on what you mentioned about the toys and play with kids. I think that's something that we've been seeing a lot, or I've at least been seeing a lot, In recent years, I think there's been a big uptick in companies trying to make their toys more diverse and representative of kids, and I've seen quite a bit of backlash on it, for no reason, really, to my my own opinion, Um, on, like, Twitter, and even on, like, some some Facebook pages. It's just so important, because then you see those stories of kids who, you know, they're Four, five, six years old, and they get a doll for the first time that looks like them, or a toy that looks like them, or reminds them of their family, and it mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference, and it plays into that idea of hope and some sort of um, motivating factor, almost that these kids can really be anything they want, and that's something that we have to push in the schools that there are absolutely systemic differences between races, and it's something that we should be working towards, you know. Getting rid of obviously, but mm-hmm. it just, it, I really, I love the increase in diversity in toys and movies and all sorts of, <clears throat> excuse me, all sorts of culture that kids are seeing because that's going to be such a huge part of what we do in the schools, mm-hmm. just showing that, you know, they are represented. Maybe you have to look pretty far, but they are represented somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting to talk to, uh, the people in our cohort who are interested in play therapy and how this could factor into some of that.
2: Some Mm -hmm.
0: conversations about that could factor into play therapy and how they're represented in the toys that they use in therapy. And I think also
1: just uh, an aside, um, you and I both come from a place of privilege that I think is important to acknowledge um, Mm -hmm. as white people that we have never been affected by systemic issues it's just not something that we have any experience with so we can only speak so far on it just to kind of umbrella over our conversations here going forward that Mm -hmm. we're only speaking from what we can find you know on the internet and in our studies it's not anything that we have ever lived through um and it's important for us to keep in mind the two of us as people Mm -hmm. like i said in the schools because there are going to be so many diverse kids, especially in the Syracuse district. There's going to be a lot more diversity than I would have seen, you know, here back at home or even in the Oswego districts. So I think it's just that we both acknowledge that.
0: Yeah. And that's another reason why the holiday has been overlooked so long by so many white people because we've never experienced racism and we don't have to know about racism if we don't want to, because Uh, just part of our privilege is that it doesn't affect us in a negative way on a day-to-day basis. So it's not something that is staring us in the face every day, as it is for so many of our students.
1: Right. And I think that's, it's really part of why it takes so long to see systemic change, because there's so many white people in positions of power that just don't see the issues that are occurring. And I think that was a great, not great, obviously it was hard to watch, um, in 2020, but when there was so much social unrest, um, I think it was good. I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. I know it opened my eyes to the reality that people live every day that I will never know. I will never live what they have lived Mm -hmm. and what they continue Mm -hmm. to live. And so it's definitely good to start the education young with kids.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I think the holiday was a good point of reflection for us. And I hope that we can continue these conversations in future episodes as we go through different topics that relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So next week, we will have our one of our main professors, Dr. Michelle Story, as a guest. And I'm excited to, it's our first professor as a guest, and she definitely has a lot of experience and a lot of interesting insights that we can learn from excited to talk to her uh
1: yeah she's definitely very insightful and she's worked in the central new york area for i want to say she said maybe 20 or so years um Mm -hmm. have some good insight i think she's doing research in one of the districts right now too
0: Um,
1: i'm very good to have her Mm -hmm.
0: all right well thank you all for listening and stay tuned next week for more Whisker of oz adventures in school psychology. Bye. Bye, everyone. For more information on the topics discussed in this episode, you can go to our show notes for our list of citations. The statistics on disproportionality and discipline came from the National Association of School Psychologists position statement, on racial and ethnic disproportionality. The information surrounding disparities in graduation and gifted programs came from the American Psychological Association's article about inequality at school. The statistics on the demographics of public schools came from the National Center for Education Statistics. The statistics on the number of enslaved people in the country before the Civil War came from the Library of Congress. The information about Juneteenth came from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, as well as an article written by Henry Louis Gates Jr. on PBS's website. The information about the 13th Amendment and enslaved people in the border states came from National Geographic.